I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, the harrowing story of one Bay Area man's fall into drug addiction and his attempted recovery. A little more than three years ago, my colleague Chronicle columnist Heather Knight was walking through San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood when she came upon a man who appeared to be dead on the sidewalk. His name was Jeffrey Choate. He wasn't dead. He needed help. Ever since, Knight has been following Jeffrey, talking to him about his profound struggles with addiction, as well as his effort to find a sober, better life. Jeffrey is not in any way alone. This past week, we learned that 650 people lost their lives to drug overdoses just in San Francisco in 2021. Most of those deaths were linked to fentanyl, the cheap, super powerful synthetic painkiller that has swept across the nation. And while the scale of the misery prompted Mayor London Breed to recently declare a state of emergency in the Tenderloid neighborhood, public officials have, so far, struggled to meaningfully confront the epidemic. Sadly, Jeffrey's own personal journey took a turn last year. After great progress, he began to spiral downward. And as Heather explains, his tragic story holds larger lessons in this crisis. Heather, thank you so much for joining me. Who is Jeffrey Choate, and how did you come to know him? Back in September of 2018, I was walking with a police officer in the Tenderloin for a column about the neighborhood's drug crisis, and we saw a man who, like you said, looked to be dead. He was sprawled on a sidewalk on Larkin Street with um, needles and other drug paraphernalia around him. He um, looked to be in really bad shape, and the police officer rousted him to make sure he was okay. And he actually came to and was remarkably coherent. I told him I was with the Chronicle. There was a photographer with us as well, and and he um, talked to us for a while about how he was 33 at the time and homeless and had been using heroin and meth every day for years and how hard it was to break out of that addiction. So you run the story, and we actually run his picture, right? Yes, we did. Um, His picture ran with the column, and his mother, Susan, happened to see it in the Chronicle and was shocked because she hadn't seen or spoken to Jeffrey in months and wasn't even sure if he was still alive. And she actually emailed me and said, I saw my son's quotes and photo in the Chronicle, and I'd like to tell you about how he wound up this way. So how had he become addicted to drugs? Jeffrey grew up in Clayton in Contra Costa County in a pretty well-off family and was a happy kid, baseball player, um, did pretty well in school. And then things really um, took a turn for the worse when he had wisdom tooth surgery as a teenager. I actually have a clip of this. Um, I recorded him telling me his life story back in September. I was 16 years old and it was actually picture day of uh, baseball. I was prescribed uh, hydrocodone or Vicodin for my wisdom teeth. And um, I remember taking the pills and the uh, the first thought that I, I literally remember coming to mind was I want to feel like this all the time. Like I felt like normal. I felt whole. I felt, you know, what I thought everyone else felt. Heather, let's talk about these early parts of his life when he starts getting in trouble. He starts landing in prison. What's going on with him? Right. So as he and his mother both told me, those um, painkillers were really intense and he became quickly addicted to them. And they both blame Kaiser for prescribing 1,700 pills to a teenager over the course of a few years, even though doctors had written in his files that he had a substance use disorder. 
from there, he kind of fell out of his family's life for a while because they fought so much and he became very angry and had a lot of rage. And so they were estranged for a while, and Susan didn't realize how bad it had become until his early 20s. By that point, he was so desperate for money to get more pills that he robbed three banks. Um, he was unarmed, but he um, he stole over $4,000, and that got him a, a state prison sentence. And from there, he was released and went to the Tenderloin for more drugs, quickly uh, realized that heroin was a lot cheaper, so he switched to that and eventually became homeless. So Heather, this is how you, you came to him. When he's in crisis in the Tenderloin, you start to talk to him. What happens next? So um, I talked to him. His mother saw the column. I began talking with her and his stepdad, Steve, and um, starting to track this family because they actually really wanted their story to be told. Um, shortly after that, Jeffrey went to Colma in um, San Mateo County and shoplifted some sweatshirts from Marshalls. Police caught him, and he gave them um, the name of a friend, not not his own name. And that wound up getting him a five-year state prison sentence. So, Heather, he was allowed to remain on the street suffering basically alone in San Francisco, whereas in San Mateo County, he's given this long prison sentence. You write that neither seems to be effective. In my opinion, San Francisco just left him to be miserable on the sidewalk. He said um, he was given Narcan several times because he overdosed. But other than that, he was given no help, no offers of treatment. Um, people just kind of walked over his sprawled out body and pretended like he wasn't there. Whereas just across the county border in San Mateo, it was completely different. Um, once he was picked up for shoplifting, he was high at the time, um, gave the sweatshirts back immediately. But still, the judge just had no time for this. I went to court with him a few times and his mother, Susan, had actually found a treatment facility with a bed, and she was hoping that the judge would send him there, but he refused and sent him to San Quentin. So two very different extremes of how to treat somebody with a drug addiction, um, and neither seemed particularly effective to me. Heather, during all this time, did Susan and Jeffrey talk about policy, what they think these cities and the governments are doing wrong and right in this crisis? Yes, they both talked to me quite a lot about that. They both looked to the country of Portugal as a real answer. That country had an opioid crisis of its own uh, many years ago and created a system where small amounts of drugs are decriminalized and people found with them are taken to a non-criminal commission where um, people will talk to them and try to understand their underlying um, issues. Uh, maybe they'll refer them to a psychologist or treatment. Treatment beds are always available, which is definitely not the case here. And the person uh, will not face jail. That's just not in the equation. But drug dealers, on the other hand, are subject to prison time. They could face years in prison. And Jeffrey and Susan both think that that system would work a lot better. They're also both uh, fans of safe consumption sites, which exist around the world in Canada, Australia, Europe, and now New York City. And people who are addicted to drugs can use them inside under supervision. Not a single person has ever overdosed and died in one of those facilities. So they think um, combining Portugal's approach with safe um, consumption sites could be the answer for San Francisco. All right, let's actually listen to a clip of Susan talking about what she considers to be the failures of the system. First of all, the judicial system fails people with substance use disorder. Substance use disorder is a disease. And until people realize that, 
and accept that as truth, we're going to we're going to keep punishing everyone who is addicted. And there are very few uh, rehabilitation programs that work for the opioid crisis. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about Jeffrey Choate's time in prison and the tragedy that occurs after he comes out and tries to make a better life for himself. We'll be right back on Fifth and Mission. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. I went to fire camp in prison and um, I excelled. You know, I didn't have the drugs there. I, I was clean for the most part, um, at least the second half. Uh, so, um, you know, when I got out, I uh, I had all, like, every intention of being clean. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. That was Jeffrey Choate. He's the man that columnist Heather Knight, my guest, has been following for more than three years as he struggles with drug addiction. Heather, Jeffrey went to prison. How did he fare there? Well, he actually wrote me a letter from prison shortly after he went to San Quentin. He was transferred to a prison fire camp um, near Fort Bragg, and he sent me a letter there in which he sounded a lot happier and more upbeat than he had um, since I'd encountered him. And he said that in fire camp, he finally had a purpose. He was getting really fit. He'd made friends. He was learning all these skills that were very practical and and helping the state of California as it endures these endless wildfire seasons. And he was really loving the work. Um, I wrote another column about him at that point because um, there was a, a strange state law that said that even though the prison system could use incarcerated people as firefighters, they would not allow the state would not allow them to become professional firefighters upon their release. So it was a real catch twenty two that you could learn the firefighting skills because of your criminal record, but your criminal record prevented you later on from using those skills that are desperately needed. Technically, the law was changed, but it's still extremely hard to become a professional firefighter with a criminal record. So he's released from prison, Heather. I want to know what happened to him, but also how did he sound? How did he talk about the possibility of having a better life? Well, he was released early during the pandemic, and I met up with him at his mom's house. He was staying there, and he just sounded kind of bored and aimless. He he had loved fighting fires and, and having a real active full day, and suddenly he had nothing to do. Um, and you know, we were all hunkered down at home and and he was too with um, no, no work. He wasn't sure what the future held, but he, um, he did try some treatment programs and he was doing pretty well. And we kept in touch until I got a really jarring text. Um, Last July, he had um, relapsed in the tenderloin and the way he described it was just, uh, just awful. He sent me pictures of his arms covered in these really gruesome abscesses. Um, He said that he'd been using drugs straight for three weeks, um, including fentanyl, which he hadn't intended to buy, but it's laced in pretty much everything these days. So he thought he was using meth, which should have kept him wide awake, but he was um, having a hard time even um, staying awake and knew that he'd taken fentanyl. He described gunshots every night and fights and violence and 
he said it just become worse than ever. And he vowed that he would never go back there because he said if he did, he knew he would die. I want to ask you about fentanyl. He had never taken it before. I mean, this is the drug that's really ravaging San Francisco. But he said that basically it's very difficult to buy drugs without people cutting fentanyl into it? Right. Um, We've written about this before, that drugs of all types, you can think you're buying a Xanax, for example, um, and it'll turn out to have fentanyl in it. It's just in everything, whether you know you're taking it or not. Being back in San Francisco, what did he think about the way the city was handling places like the Tenderloin? He just couldn't believe it. Even though he had been um, living there for a few years before his prison sentence, he said it had gotten so much worse. He said he had once thought, you know, living in Contra Costa County, he thought of San Francisco as a sort of gleaming, promising, beautiful city, and his opinion of it had completely turned, and he just hated it, and he, he just said he would not go back. So he's struggling, and what is Susan doing at this point? Uh, they had a big blow-up at around the same time. Um, she was just really struggling to um, to deal with his ups and downs, and it was hard on her own health. Her blood pressure was spiking, and she couldn't sleep, and she just decided she needed to step back and just you know pull away from that for a while. And so they didn't talk that much through the second half of last year. And he does seek recovery one more time and make progress, right? Right. That experience in the Tenderloin just seemed to really shock him and um, make him really want to turn his life around once and for all. He went to a residential treatment facility in his hometown of Clayton, and then from there went into a sober living house where um, he lived with uh, four other men and trying to stay sober. And he entered a 12-step program. He wrote a long list of, of wrongs he needed to make amends for. He had a sponsor. He had a girlfriend. He got a job at a moving company. He started doing some public speaking about his story in hopes of of helping others. And he said he just really wanted to turn his life around. And were you hopeful that the story would end positively? Yes. I was actually working on a column about his recovery. I really hoped that it would be, you know, a nice bright light in the Chronicle, which has a lot of miserable headlines these days about a lot of things, particularly the Tenderloin. Um, And I thought this was going to be sort of a happy story we could all enjoy. And what happened? So I last heard from Jeffrey on Christmas Eve. He wished me a Merry Christmas via text and happy holidays. And then I got a devastating text from his mother, Susan, in early January that he had been found dead in a motel room in Concord alone with drug paraphernalia around him. And I know you spent time with Susan in the aftermath of Jeffrey's death. What does she think about his life and what should be done now? Yes, going with her to the mortuary to pick an urn for her son's ashes and then um, go into the room with her as she saw his body a final time was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do as a journalist. It was really emotional to see her just start wailing and sobbing as a mother of two little sons of my own. Imagining them in that position one day was just heartbreaking. Um, And she, she kept yelling, Jeffrey, wake up, wake up. Oh, my God. And it was just just a really hard day. Since then, she has started planning for a viewing um, of him, and she intends to have him cremated and keep the urn, and one day uh, he will be buried with her, so he will never be alone again. And here we have Susan talking to you as she wrote the eulogy for her son. I'm currently writing his 
a eulogy to just speak a little bit and I equate it to watching a plane crash and that you just pray that they could pull up and mm -hmm. even off and they level off and and then you can breathe and then you find out that there's no survivors and I just wrote that because that's exactly how I feel and I used to keep my phone on all night long waiting for if he needed us or the call and now the phone's shut off at night heather i'm sorry that the story turned out this way i know a lot of listeners and readers of the chronicle were following jeffrey choate through your writing it's a terrible story but thank you for for doing it thank you for following jeffrey and for coming on thank you for having me thanks to my guest today she's chronicle city hall columnist heather knight to karen creighton for producing this episode and thank you for listening <laughs>